If you would open your Bibles to the book of Ephesians chapter 2, and stand with me, we're going to read these last 11 verses of this chapter. We've been traveling through the book of Ephesians, and I hope that you've been uh, joining me on this uh, journey, and I'm going to encourage you to continually uh, be in the book of Ephesians. Let's, let's plumb the depths of this, uh, each of us in our own personal life and in our time together here. We're going to begin in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. I'm going to read through the passage. We're going to pray and get into the sermon. Paul writing to this church, he says, Wherefore remember that you being in time past Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants and of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who sometimes were far off, are made nigh by the blood of Christ. Amen. For he is our peace, who hath, made both, uh, who hath made both one and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us, yes. having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of twain one new man, so making peace. And that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby, and came and preached peace to you which were afar off, and to them that were nigh. And through him we both have access by one Spirit unto the Father. Yes. Now therefore, you are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints, Amen. and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. Let's pray. God, I pray you just be with us right now. Lord, as we examine this this passage and try to come to grips with uh, uh, what is being revealed to the readers here, to, be, to us this morning. God, help us uh, to draw near to your word. God, I pray you just open our, our hearts, open our eyes, and Lord, open my mouth in such a way that, uh, that all these here will know that it's coming from you and not from me. Amen. God, help me to be your vessel. We love you and we praise you. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Amen. How many of y'all uh, are... How many of y'all are Aggie fans? Oh, come on, that's not enough hands, okay? Now, uh, I grew up in a family of Aggie fans. Uh, none of my immediate family has actually gone to Texas A&M, but I have an uncle uh, who, who has gone to Texas A&M, and somehow, you know, he, he infiltrated us, and, and it all bled into us. And, and so when I was growing up, and we would enjoy uh, college football, all that we cared about was the Texas A&M Aggies. And when I was growing up, the Aggies weren't part of the SEC. They were part of the Big 12. And the biggest rifle that we had in the Big 12 was UT. Beat the out of UT. TU, right? TU. And I'll tell a story about when Melissa and I, we raised our niece and... and uh, uh, for for much of her life and and you know people always want to have some kind of influence and usually when they know someone's an Aggie fan they want to needle them and mess with them and so someone gave my niece a Longhorns hat I'll never forget she he gave it to her at church camp 
And she was grinning ear to ear, knowing that was going to bother me. And I just said, give me the hat. And we disposed of the hat, and I got her a different hat. (laughs) The Longhorns is our rival. I'm saying is, okay? They may, uh, we may not be part of the same conference anymore, although we may be now. I can't, I, I haven't been able to keep track of that. But, but you know what? Even though the Aggies have been part of the SEC for quite a while now, the Longhorns are still our state rival, and the Longhorns <laughs> deserve all our ire and anger and hatred, okay? Subtle. Subtle, yeah. Amen. And what we're talking about, what Paul is talking about here is a rivalry, that had existed for quite a long time, not between Aggies and Longhorns, but between Gentiles and Jews. You see, the the Gentiles and Jews had lived a very separate existence for uh, all of history before this point. But, you know, Christ changes everything. Yeah. Amen. Christ changes everything. And, And what Christ has done has changed everything. And so what we see in this passage is this, wonderful change uh, for the Gentiles. And I I don't know if there's any Jews here this morning. I think all of us probably claim to be Gentiles. And so this means tremendously uh, quite quite a bit to us. And so I'm going to structure my sermon. I have four points this morning. I will try to burn through them quick uh, because I know all the dads want to go eat and take a nap. Um, But I'll just give them to you, okay? They're going to be they're going to begin, the first point is going to be from, second point is going to be to, the third point is going to be with, and the fourth point is going to be for, there you go, but without the you, all right? So the first thing we see is from the unbeliever's state. Uh, these first two verses that, uh, that we see in this passage, the 11 and 12, begin very similarly to the first three verses of the beginning of the chapter, if you remember. Remember, uh, at the beginning of chapter 2, he talked about the sinner's uh, state before Christ, right? Remember, in in verse 4, we have those beautiful words, but God. In fact, spoiler, verse 13, we have but, another wonderful but statement. Um, But these first two verses describes the unbeliever's state. The the gent and he's talking about Gentiles, but really he's talking about all unbelievers. Yeah. And he paints a very dark picture of life apart from Christ, uh, using the comparison of the Jews and the Gentiles. He, he, and he, as we, if we just kind of look through this, we see that they were separated. Anybody who is an unbeliever is separated, yeah. is separate. Uh, Gentiles in the flesh, he says, wherefore remember that you being in time past Gentiles, in the flesh. You're separated. You're separate. You're different. And, and then he talks about a, a physical, a real physical difference between Jews and Gentiles. He uses the, the physical district, uh, difference of circumcision. Of course, circumcision was a, a physical sign of the Jews' covenant with God. And so uncircumcision in the flesh meant you were separated, not just from this other group, this other group that's made of flesh like you and me, but another, we're separated from God. Uh, This is a a bleak and dark situation, separated. Uh, In verse 12, at that time you were without Christ. Not only were we separated, but we were Christless. Without Christ. You know, Gentiles 
had been separated from the messianic hope of Israel. If we were to go to, you might go ahead and stick your finger in the book of Romans, and we're going to look a little bit in some uh, passages in Romans, not a lot, but Romans chapter 9. If you look in Romans chapter 9, verses 4 and 5, it says, Who are Israelites to whom pertaineth the adoption? So it talks about things that, are, that, are, that pertain directly to the Israelites. To whom pertaineth the adoption, and the glory, and the covenants, and the giving of the law, and the service of God, and the promises, who are the fathers, and of whom, as concerning the flesh, Christ came, who was over all, God blessed forever. Amen. So the Jews had been told in their scriptures about the Messiah. They had received the covenants. They had received the promises. The Gentiles were foreign to these things. They didn't understand them. They didn't know them. The message was not given to them. They were Christless. More essentially, to be separated from Christ is to be separated from his salvation. Separated from life in God. What could be more terrible than that? When you, if you're a believer this morning, you understand the difference between being Christless and being separated from life in God, being separated from his salvation. Man, that is a bleak situation. It is utterly hopeless. The second part of this uh, verse, being aliens. Hey, did y'all know aliens are in the Bible? Yeah, not the little green guys from Mars or whatever. Uh, no, there are aliens in the Bible, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. This is our description. The Gentiles were foreigners to Israel. They were excluded from citizenship of Israel and were strangers to the covenants. Gentiles were aliens to God's people. You know, uh, how many of y'all liked the movie Independence Day? Independence Day. My boys are not quite old enough to watch that because it's got some pretty freaky stuff in there, okay? Scary stuff. But Independence Day is a little scary. And, and whenever, you, you remember the first time we get eyes on an alien is whenever uh, Will Smith is flying against this one alien craft and he causes it to crash. And then uh, he walks up to that ship and he's all mad and, and, and the alien pops out and he punches him in the face and he says, welcome to Earth, right? And you realize These aliens, they don't belong. Listen, aliens don't belong. They're they're not one of us. Uh, Foreigners, uh, illegal aliens coming from uh, other nations and and immigrating to the United States illegally, they don't belong. It's not that we don't want them, we don't like them. It's it's that they haven't gone through the right channels. and, and, And so aliens don't belong. They're alienated from God's people. And it says, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers from the covenants of promise. What covenants? Well, I think what he's talking about is clear to us from Scripture, the covenants of the Old Testament, of Abraham, the covenant of Isaac and Jacob, the covenant of Israel, the Davidic covenant. Yeah. Those, those five important covenants. And the covenants of what? The covenants of promise. What promise could they have been so separate from and estranged to? That would be the promise to Abraham regarding the Messiah. To be separated from the covenants of promise meant that they were missing the covenants that promised the Messiah. Listen, if we go back, if you go back to Romans 9 and look at that verse 4, he said, who are Israelites to whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and promises. Listen, all of that stuff belonged to Israel and Israel alone. Yeah. 
It was revealed to them and them alone. And we, we, we were left on the outside, aliens and strangers and foreigners. And then the final part of verse 12, boy, it does not become a better view, having no hope and without God in the world. Listen, the unbeliever's state is a hopeless and a godless state. Yes. You know, God planned in the Abrahamic covenant to bless all nations through Israel. But the Gentiles didn't know that. It was withheld from them. No knowledge of these promises, of the promise of the Messiah, meant that they knew no hope of the promise of the Messiah. Nor did they know the God of the promise of the Messiah. Where could they turn? Well, the same place men have been turning since uh, for all ages and even up till now. And we see in Romans 1 uh, and verse 18 talking about this. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven and against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness because that which may be known of God and is manifest in them. But God hath showed it unto them for the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God. Neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man, and to birds, and four-footed beasts, and creeping things. Because the Gentiles had no clue about the promises of God, and the, the God of the promises, the promise of the Messiah, that someone would come and redeem them to God, and, and assure for them eternal life, because they didn't know, they have no hope, and so they try to find hope in anywhere else they can find it. In the world, they would make idols. This is just describing what had been taking place for thousands of years before Paul wrote the book of Romans. But it's the same thing that's taking place now. Yeah. Uh, this, this, whole, this whole thing, this whole thing we're talking about, uh, the, the unbeliever state... Before any of us became believers, this was our same tragic position. And if there's an unbeliever here, if you've never trusted Christ, you're not sure in your salvation, then this might be your eternal state right now till you turn to Christ. Separated, Christless, alien and foreign, and hopeless and godless. But, verse 13, but now... Amen. In Christ. Amen. We see two. We see the believer's union. Uh, the believer's union. Let's read that verse 13. He's but now in Christ Jesus you, who were sometimes far off, are made near by, uh, uh, by the blood of Christ. So the believer's union brings us from far to near. I love that it begins with another but statement. It just it's another little it's a little wink from Paul saying, Hey, I know what I'm writing here. He knows what he's talking about. He knows what he's trying to convey. He's, he's trying to convey the same thing uh, that, that he tries to convey in Galatians 6.15 when he talks about circumcision. He says, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision availeth anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creature. 
Why does that matter? Because you remember in, the, in, in verse 11, he talked about, uh, we were called the uncircumcised by that which is called the circumcision, but he calls the circumcision in the flesh, made by hands. So we're talking about something that is, that is changed. Circumcision is no longer about skin. It's now about the heart. We're not brought near. How? What does it say? But now in Christ Jesus, you who sometimes were far off are made nigh. How? Wake up now. Come on. By the blood of Christ. That's the only way. There's a, a lot of people in this world who think that us Christians or us biblical Christians, I would call us, have way too much interest in the blood of Christ. We're just a bloody, violent-minded people. Well, I disagree with that assessment. I would say that uh, uh, more than 40% of the New Testament talks about the atonement, the blood of Christ, because it is central. The cross is central to the change all believers experience. We must experience... Jesus had to go to the cross. He had to shed his perfect blood and he had to rise again so that we would have this change in our lives so that we could be brought from far to near. The blood might be ugly, but you know, the blood reminds us of what Christ truly did for us in his great love. The blood reminds us of the gravity of our sin. I can't help but think of Genesis chapter 3, right near the end of that chapter, after Eve had, had, had eaten of the fruit and then gave to Adam, and Adam followed right along, and, and them two together, they sinned against God, rejected God's uh, plan, God's uh, will for them, and, and they realized that they were sinners, and of course God shows up on the scene and he pronounces the curse, you remember he talks about the seed of the woman, praise God for that. But at the end of the chapter, what does he do? Remember, they, what, did they have done, what have they done in their foolishness? But Lester preached about this a couple weeks ago. What did they do in their foolishness trying to cover their, their, their nakedness? They made aprons of fig leaves. And it just, it wasn't cutting it. And so what Paul, what, what Paul, not Paul, what God did is he made for them skins of animals, clothes out of skins of animals. Well, I, 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 can't, I can't help but imagine that, that that is something Adam and Eve would never, ever forget the first time that they saw blood. Because for God to get the skin off of the animal, that animal had to be killed. That animal had to die. The blood had to be shed to cover their shame. And I imagine that that image was burned into their brain for their very, both of their very long lives, Adam living to be 960 years old, I bet he remembers that day to the very last day of his life. It reminds us, the blood reminds us of the gravity of our sin. How that through his blood, now we've been brought from far to near. Not only that, in verse 14, we see that he has brought us peace. He says, but now in Christ, oh, but he, for he is our peace, who hath made both one and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us. He's brought us peace. Jesus is the peacemaker. 
He is the peacemaker. He is our peace. And where do you look for for peace? All my kids have to be quiet and leave me alone for at least 10 minutes once a day, right? That's how I'm going to have peace. Or, uh, you know what, I just, I just need to come home and uh, be able to turn on the TV and my brain to kind of disconnect from reality for a while, and that'll bring me peace. Do you ever find true peace there? No. We seek peace all over the place. We seek it in all kinds of areas of our life. Where are you going to find peace? The only place you're going to find true peace is in Christ. That's it. It's not going to be uh, checking all the boxes on your to-do list. It's not going to be on achieving all your uh, career goals. You're going to find peace only in Christ. He brought us from far to near. He brought us peace. He unified us and created us into a new man. It says he hath broken down the middle wall of partition. You know, when Paul wrote this passage... The temple was still standing. And in that temple, there was a literal wall in the temple that was built for the sole purpose to exclude Gentiles. Josephus talked a little bit about this in in his uh, uh, histories. And he talked about this wall, this wall uh, between where the Gentiles were allowed to congregate and where the Jews were permitted to go. And on the sign near the, uh, near the entrances, or not on the sign, on the, near the entrances, there was signs posted. He says in his own, it's not recorded for us in the Bible, but Josephus says that there were signs that said, don't walk, if you're a Gentile, don't walk past this point or you're going to die. We're talking about serious separation. And that temple, though, was destroyed physically in 70 A.D., but you know when Jesus Christ died on the cross and shed his blood for you and me and the veil was rent from the top to the bottom, he destroyed that middle wall of partition on that day, Amen. spiritually. We're no longer separated. We're now brought together. We're unified. We're created into a new man. Christ created a whole new humanity which exists only in Christ, having abolished in his flesh, oh, excuse verse 14, for he is our peace, who hath made us both one, and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of two one new man, so making peace. He's created a whole new humanity which exists only in Christ. Gentiles have not been transformed into Jews. And Jews have not been transformed into Gentiles. Rather, God has created a completely new race of people, that being the family of God. Galatians 3.28. Paul writes, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. You know, many of us might look different. Uh, There's some in here that that don't look like you could be my parents. And there's someone here that looks, don't look like I could be your parent. We're, many of us look very different. We have a lot of diversity. Praise God for that. Because diversity is a, is a glorious demonstration of the work of Christ. Because he's taken what was separated and, and divided, and he's brought it all together in one, in Christ. Um, uh, it... <laughs> 
It has ended. Not only has it uh, uh, ended our, our separation, it's a picture of heaven. Our diversity is a glorious picture of heaven. Our, our, we, he's, he's brought us from, near, from far to near. He's brought us peace. He's unified us and created us into a new uh, uh, family, a new man. And then we see uh, that the, from, from the separation from God to reconciliation with God. Uh, look in verse 16. And, and that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby, and came and preached peace to you which were far off and to them which were nigh. And through him we both have access by one spirit unto the Father. When Christ died on the cross... We were reconciled. Those of us who've trusted in the cross and Jesus Christ, we've been reconciled to God. That's awesome. I mean, I praise God for that. That's why we come here every Sunday. But not only, he's not talking only about being reconciled to God. He's also talking about being reconciled with one another. You see, uh, Paul has been talking about this whole time, about a, a, a rivalry that had existed for thousands of years between the Gentiles and the Jews, which was at times incredibly hostile and violent. And, and, and even when we see through the first century church, when we read about the kind of difficulties they, they struggled with, the things that Paul had to address with many of these churches, what he was dealing with was oftentimes things that were hostilities between Jews and Gentiles. But what Christ did, what God did, he said he's abolished in his flesh the enmity. Not only has God turned away his wrath towards us, it's ended our hostility towards one another. He's abolished the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances. That's his wrath. For to make in himself of twain one new man, so making peace, and that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby, and preached peace to you which were far, and those that were near, peace to everyone who is now part of this new body. And ultimately, what that results in in verse 18 is through him, we both have access by one spirit unto the Father. And I'll just kind of point something out to you about this verse. We see uh, three persons of the Godhead here in verse 18. We see for through him. Who's that? Wake up. Come on. Who is it? It's Jesus. We both have access by one spirit, the Holy Spirit, unto the Father. We have unrestrained access to God Amen. together. Listen, the, the change already that has taken place, we've gone uh, from being separated and Christless and hopeless and godless to being identified together in a way we, we never could have done on our own. You know, the whole chant of this uh, the political systems of this world is unity, 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 unity. They want us all to unite under uh, one country's ideas of what we're supposed to be united under usually. They don't really care about what other people think. But the idea is unity. And someday uh, this world is going to fall under a one world government and they're going to c- proclaim unity. Hey, we've, we've achieved uh, 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 paradise because now we've abolished all these divisions. But that's not going to be the truth. The only way that 
all divisions are going to be erased is in Christ. And the beautiful thing about it is, is it already has taken place in his church. We're identified together with. With is my third point. With Christ's work. The work of Christ was to remove the condemnation of the law. And I'm just going to try to hit some of the high points here, but look at the extent Paul goes through to highlight the work of Christ. I mean, in, in, in verse 13, Now in Jesus Christ you who were sometimes far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace. See, see how central he is? He is our peace who hath made both one and hath broken. He has broken down the middle wall of partition between us. He has abolished in his flesh the, the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in himself. For to make in himself of twain one new man, so making peace, that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby. For through him, verse 18, for through Jesus, we both have access to God. All of this has happened with Christ's work on the cross. Do you know we're meant to be unified? Look at verse 19. Now therefore you are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. No, we're meant to be unified. We're not meant to be divided. When I was growing up, I grew up in a, well, I grew up in an independent Baptist church in Keller, Texas, and eventually became South Lake, South Lake annexed that part of Keller. And, um, but it was just a little country church when I was growing up. And that little country church well, we all looked very similar. We'll just put it that way. We were all, we all could have been related. We were all one color. And I always wondered, why don't we have people that look different? To it? Why don't we have any Hispanic people here in our church? We didn't really have any many Hispanic people. Why don't we have any uh, African-American people in our church? Now, it wasn't because we didn't want any of them. But for some reason, we just kind of were divided from them. Maybe not, certainly not on purpose, I believe. But we're supposed to be united. No matter what we look like. No matter where we came from. We're to be united in Christ. Uh, he, he describes us as fellow citizens of the kingdom of God. Citizenship is a blessing. Listen, to be an American citizen is a, is a blessing. You may not think so if you watch the news too much. Okay? But why don't you just take a moment and consider the freedom you have as an American? My goodness. Uh, tomorrow, we're going to, uh, there, there's a celebration. Uh, tomorrow is a national holiday now called Juneteenth. And what does it recognize? The emancipation of slaves. Slavery does not exist in the United States anymore. I mean, it, it does illegally. There's little pockets of it, I'm sure, but not anything like it was systematically before. I mean, let me tell you, that's a tremendous blessing. Our citizenship secures for us. There's, there's, there's more slaves in the world now than there were 200 years ago. 
citizen is, citizenship is a blessing. To be a foreigner, in a week, I'm going to go to Panama. And a year ago, I went to Panama, and I was there for about 10 days or 8 or 9 days. And, you know, uh, whenever I exited the plane, me and Benjamin went together. And Benjamin went, when we exited the plane in, in Tocumen International, uh, there in Panama City, suddenly we were foreigners, I mean, we were aliens in a, in, a, in a strange land. Most people there didn't speak any English. We were outsiders. And I'll be honest with you, I felt very vulnerable. And I can imagine how it must be to be a, 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 someone who's immigrated into the United States is not yet a citizen. They, I'm, I'm sure they can feel very vulnerable. But God says, now we are fellow citizens with the saints. We're unified together. We're now fellow members of God's own household. How? We have the same father. This is what has happened with Christ's work. But last point, talk about four. What has this all done for? I think that's revealed to us in these last uh, three verses, verse 20, 20, 21, and 22. We see the church's function. For the church's function, or the Christian's function, you could put that there too. It says, now therefore you are, uh, verse 19, now therefore you are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. He uses, Paul uses two examples, two different uh, pictures, word pictures, citizenship uh, with a nation and a household of a, with a family, um, household members with a family. And then he talks about a building, and he, and he he goes in much deeper detail with this last uh, example he uses. He says, "...are built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets." The church's function is to be founded on the ministry of the apostles and the prophets. What is he referring to there? Where do you receive the ministry of the apostles and the prophets? Oh, man. Amy's got it in the Bible. This is, this is what our church is to be founded on. Listen, every, every Christian life should be founded on God's Word. You know, your life and this church will either stand or fall on our faithfulness to God's Word. The church's function begins with being founded on God's word. And then it goes further. Paul goes further. He says, uh, founded on the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief corner stone. So the cornerstone of Christ himself is, is, is the second part of this church's function is to be anchored on the cornerstone of Christ himself. There's only one, there's only ever one cornerstone. And, and it's important that we know who the cornerstone is, and it's got to be Jesus Christ. He makes the entire building that Paul is describing possible. Without the cornerstone, it doesn't exist. Uh, we just talked about Paul's extent that he goes through to try to express what Christ has done to make this happen. Christ, uh, the whole community of Christianity, the whole community of the church is to be built solely upon him. There is no unity or peace without Christ. I mean, we go back to verse 14. He says, he is our peace. 
the cornerstone of Christ himself. The church's function also is the building of believers. I like how he describes this in verse 21. In whom all the building, fitly framed together, we are we're, we're co-fitted together. What in the world does that mean, Brother Darren? Uh, I'm not a bricklayer or a stonemason, but you know the most skilled of the stonemasons, what will they do? They will, they will carve and they will chip away at stone in such a way so that two stones can marry up together and to be fit perfectly together. Uh, there is so much in that idea, in that description right there. Because that means that, first off, uh, the church is to to be built together. We're all loose stones, okay? We're we're all uh, living stones, all right? If you thought you were a blockhead, then you were right, okay? Or maybe your husband's a blockhead. Yeah, he's a blockhead, okay? But what, what God wants to do with us, if we'll allow him, if we'll... Quit pushing him away. What he'll do with us is he'll take his tools and he'll change us and he'll mold us so that we fit together so perfectly. I've never seen a wall built like that. I did work in construction, and of course, we didn't do construction like that. We didn't build stone buildings. We built wood frame houses, and I built we built steel frame houses for a little bit, one neighborhood I worked in. But on the outside, we'd put a brick facade, and of course, the bricks were pre-made, and then they were mortared together. Well, if you want to use that, Christ is the mortar, okay, to keep the peace and the unity between all of us. But also, he will mold us and shape us in such a way that we'll fit so perfectly together that when something is built like that, it will not weather, it will not uh, uh, experience, it might weather, but it won't experience the kind of uh, damage that the world will give it. It will stand firm, fitly framed, Fitly framed. And then builded together. In whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. Each of us are important. If you're here this morning and you've been listening to me, and you're fighting off your weariness because you probably didn't get the kind of sleep you should have the night before church. I want you to hear one thing. Every blockhead in a church is important. Every person, every member of a church is crucially important for it to function the way God designed it. You belong here. If you're a member of this church, you belong here. You belong as to be part of the work here. Uh, church membership isn't something that it's like, you know, okay, well, we're going we're gonna to build this house and we're going to put brick upon brick upon brick upon brick, and then we're going to leave that brick over there because that brick wants to stay over there. You think that building is going to go together the way it should? No. We all fit together. We're like a puzzle, and we need every piece to be existing there. How and why? What's the function, the true function? To be the dwelling of God and Christ in the Spirit. The dwelling place of God in the Old Testament, and at the time that Paul was writing this, the Jews believed the dwelling place of God was the temple. He was there. But now, guess where he is? 
He can be found in the people of God anywhere in the world. In, in the Philippines, in Panama. Hey, the people of God, the, the presence of God is there in Panama with the people of God who are there. And this all kind of points back to that key verse in chapter 1 we see for this whole book, in verse 10, we see the consummation of all things in Christ, that in the, fullness, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times He might gather together in one all things in Christ. This is part of that plan. That glorious plan that I've been talking to you about, it's part of it. Our, our function is to be fitly framed together, founded on the Word of God, with Christ as our cornerstone, and now being the dwelling place of God. I, I, uh, I think about the tabernacle, whenever they were carrying it through the wilderness, and, and they, would, they could see the presence of God with them. Listen, when a church is functioning this way, founded on God's word, with Christ as the cornerstone, uh, fitly, uh, closely fitted together, allowing us to chip away the stuff that Christ doesn't want so that we fit together perfectly, we'll be able to see the physical presence of God. It may not shine like a, a light that our physical eyes can, can see, but let me tell you, I've, I've been in a lot of churches, and I, I, I've I'm thankful to say most of the churches I've been in that are like our faith, you can see the love of God in the people. And it's a blessing. It's our greatest evangelism tool is for us to shine the presence of God among one another. I've about exhausted my time, but I want to share a couple of thoughts for those of you that are members, because I think most of you are members, not all of you. I'll talk to some of you that aren't members here in a moment. But for those of you that are members of our church, I see in this passage an elevated view of the church, of the local church. What do I mean by that? I mean, what I mean is your relationship or walk with God is not an isolated walk. Let me say that again. Your relationship or your walk with God is not an isolated walk. The passage that we've studied confronts the idea of American individualism. Uh, we, we are so uh, uh, bent on being individuals. We're going to do it my way. I know best. I, I think I've figured this out. I feel like this is the best way for me. <clears throat> we apply that to every place in our life. But you know what? It doesn't and it cannot apply scripturally to your Christian walk with God. <coughs> Excuse me. I'm so sorry. How many of you ever said, I have my own walk with God? Or heard somebody say that? I have my own walk with God. I, 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 I know what I'm doing. No. Your walk with God is ultimately meant to be part of a body. And if you're a member of this church, your walk with God is part of this body, whether you think it is or not. And it matters how you walk with Him. Not If you're just going to try to feel your way through it, you're going to fail and you're going to mess up. You've got to be founded on God's Word. And Christ has got to be the cornerstone of your life. That's the only way we're going to be fitly framed together and built together. The Christian life is meant to be lived as part of a church. 
Many people feel like church is unnecessary or unimportant. You might be here today and maybe you've been saved, but you might have the idea in your mind that, you know what? Uh, Yeah, I can do Christianity, but I don't really need to be a member of a church. I I don't have to do that. It's not that important to me. It's important to God. It's important to God for you to be a member of a church. This is God's plan for every Christian to be a a believing and then baptized member of a local church, doing the work, fulfilling the function of God, the function of the church. People might feel like they don't need church, but that's not the design for every Christian at all. You might be here and maybe you've never trusted Christ. Let me tell you, what Christ has done for us that have believed... He has done for you. He wants to bring you from far to near. He wants to change you from being Christless to being rooted and grounded in Christ. He wants you to go from being a foreigner, a stranger, an alien, to the family of God, the citizenship of heaven, to being one of his very own. He wants you to go from hopeless and godless to saved with eternal life in Christ. And if you're here this morning, you've never trusted Christ, today's the day. You don't have to wait. Here we're going to have a a moment of invitation. Brother Eric is going to come and he's going to lead us in a song. Come on, Brother Eric. (laughs) He's going to lead us in a song and and, you know, there's a lot of churches that don't do invitations anymore. And I might start doing it a little differently. I don't know. But there's a purpose for the invitation. And the purpose is for us to respond to God's word. Not to me, okay? I'm not a salesman trying to sell you a new car or anything like that. I think I'd be a pretty bad salesman. My job is to present to you God's word and what he says. My job is to challenge you with the truths that are here so that we might respond accordingly. So if you're here today and God is speaking to you about joining a church, do it. Let's talk about it. If God is speaking to you about getting baptized, well, let's talk about it. We got a baptistry right here. We could fill it up and I'll baptize you when I get back from Panama. Or maybe here you need to trust Christ. Maybe you're here and you're part of this church, but you've just kind of been doing your own thing. Listen, we need to turn our lives over to him and live for him. Father, I thank you so much for this day. I thank you for your word. I thank you for this passage. God, I pray that it's, I pray that I've organized it in such a way that it's clear and concise. And God, I pray most of all that these that are here will have received it and that it, we will allow it to change us. Help us to live more according to your word. Help us to function as you would have us to function. In Christ's name I pray, amen.